Hey, Natalie. Hey, Raph. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty awesome, actually. How you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm just trying to get used to the view because usually you're standing, and now I can see all the things behind you because you're seated. It's a good change. I've I even like it. got like there's even carpet in here and everything you can see. Oh yeah, I can see. Are those all all of your bones on? Yeah, um, I've got lots of bones on the bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I've got a lot on the bookshelf, and then I've got some other ones not on the bookshelf. Uh, yeah, I like to break them up because, like, I buy the whole skeleton, but then I break off the arm or the leg or the hip or the whatever so I can demonstrate because I've got an overhead camera here that I use to demonstrate if we're doing a close-up of whatever joint and uh, so I like to break it up so I don't have to like drape the skeleton over my shoulder while I'm trying to move the knee joint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's handy. So I've got a big pile of uh, dis- dis- disassembled bones. So, uh, well, here we are, another episode of Pilates Elephants and um you're going to set this one up, so over to you. Yeah. So last week when we recorded, we had had a side conversation about the loneliness of being a Pilates instructor, and we you had written down that that would be a nice future episode. And so I was thinking about it in the last couple of days, and I ended up listening to a podcast um, with Adam Grant, who's a, an organizational psychologist. I really love following his work. I think he says a lot of really cool things and interesting things about um, making workplace uh, a friendlier environment for people. And in that interview, it was a, I don't remember what year it was. It was maybe in 2020, he, Adam Grant did a, an interview with our U.S. Surgeon General, who is like the country's top doctor in the United States. And his name is Vivek um, Murthy. And this doctor's, uh, the I don't know how familiar familiar you are with the Surgeon General's role, but oftentimes they pick a pet project and it's kind of the theme for the country. And um, this doctor, Dr. Murthy's pet project is about the epidemic of loneliness and isolation. So there's a New York Times op-ed about it. Um, Obviously, he's gone on to podcasts and he's done interviews and he's in the media talking about loneliness and isolation and the the figure that he he espoused back in 2020 was one in two Americans when um, interviewed have described um, serious bouts of loneliness which has likely been exacerbated in times of pandemic but also because a lot of things are remote and digital now and distributed so I was thinking about that within the context of the Pilates industry, because when our students reach the end of the course, I usually leave them with a little tidbit before we say goodbye, before they graduate. And the tidbit I always leave them is to build a social infrastructure around you as you go out into the Pilates world, because being a Pilates teacher is often very, very lonely You know, you're often the only person in the studio. A lot of studios don't have front desks anymore. So you're often the only one. And if you're not the only one, you're the only one in that particular classroom. Somebody else is doing something else in another room. Um, And obviously, if you're teaching online, which a lot of people do, you are the only one in the room. You know, you're the only one um, on screen. You're You're the lone captain of the ship. So... I just really feel like it is such an important part of being a Pilates teacher, just like how you would practice cueing and practice class programming. It's a really important part of the job is to be able to create a support system for yourself so that you can have your tires pumped up when things aren't going well or to collaborate if there's you know an idea that you have and to share all of your successes with. And that's really the thing that that I like to leave my graduates with. Tell me about you. What What do you think about the idea that being a Pilates teacher is lonely? Oh yeah, uh, I that was my experience. You know, when I ran a studio for a decade, uh, in my role as like the leader of the studio, I would there was I did a lot of talking with people, and so that that role itself wasn't particularly lonely. But teaching classes always was like by definition, you like it's. And this is what I've noticed since since being an educator as well, is like within the training program, there's this wonderful, and I experienced this myself as a student and also observed lots of students 
over the years, there's this wonderful sense of excitement and camaraderie and we're all working towards this common goal and learning these exciting things and improving and growing every day. And we're just there like geeking out over Pilates and anatomy, like all day. It's like, you know, how, how fun is that? You know, that's the like, Oh, I'm living the dream. This is amazing. Um, and then your training ends and all of a sudden your workplace basically is you're, you're like ships passing in the night with all of the other people who work there. Uh, and you know, it can, it can literally be the case that as an instructor, if you work somewhere that doesn't have like a receptionist, you know, employed or whatever, you could not see another colleague for weeks at a time because literally you're working when they're not working and they're working when you're not working. And so, you know, you, you kind of have, have these dreams of like, Oh, you know, get around and do everyone's classes and stuff. But it's like, after you've worked a nine hour shift, the last thing you want to do is stick around for another hour and do someone's class or come back after you've been home for two hours and do someone's class. <laughs> so you end up, I ended up hardly ever auditing other people's classes and yeah, I, I did feel lonely. You know, paradoxically, since I've since we've been online, I feel much more connected. No, it's true. And I, you know, I was thinking about how lonely it was for me when I was um, a baby instructor, and that really led to a lot of my feelings of burnout. Um, was just feeling all by myself, feeling really isolated, not having anybody to check in with. Um, and, you know, going back to the whole idea of being in a training program, or even if you're not in a training program, if you were in a, a continuing education course, whether it's a weekend or a longer period of time, you start to connect with people because you're collaborating and sharing ideas. And um, I can just, Maybe I remember. Maybe that's one of the reasons, I'm sorry to interrupt. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Pilates instructors are such voracious self-educators, because that's it's like, just like we have clients who come to us and it seems like all they want to do is talk. It's like, yeah, maybe this is the only time they get out of the house all week and you're the only person they've interacted with socially. It's like my Pilates instructors, maybe that's your weekend workshop. Like that's the only time you get to hang out with other Pilates instructors. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I never thought about it in that way, but that has to be part of the calculus, Right. That it is the opportunity to network and to connect with other people who are have the same mission as you, to have the same goal as you and the same passion. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a really important insight. So maybe we could start a new workshop series just called like get together and drink coffee all day. Like yeah. Or, <laughs> or, you know, you can just start to make connections with people. And I think, you know, going back to what you said about now that you're online, you feel so much more connected. I agree. I think part of it is just having had more experience in the industry and knowing what I needed. So when I was a baby instructor, I didn't know that I needed to have friends and colleagues and mentors. I just thought, okay, now I'm a Pilates instructor. And I felt orphaned, right? Like I felt orphaned after my training, but I just thought that this is the norm. This is how it should be. And then as I started to, you know, build my career a little bit more and have more experience and started to make connections with, um, it started with making connections locally. So I have some friends who I would just meet for coffee or meet for lunch and just we would talk shop all the time. That was incredibly helpful. And then obviously being online, I feel like um, knowing that I need to have a network, I make more effort to make connections and to keep the connections and it's, it's the best part of my job. Like for instance, um, you know, we at Breathe, we have our team meetings on my Monday or Tuesday, and I really look forward to the team meetings. I think a lot of people don't like meetings. I love team meeting because it's the one chance that I get to see all of my coworkers. And it's, it's just nice to be able to check in. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I was thinking just as you were opening up the episode that, you know, like, oh, how great it would be if, for instance, like you were just down the street uh, rather than you, you know, being in uh, the States. Are you, are you, you're in Seattle? Yeah, you're in Seattle, Washington. I'm in Melbourne, Australia. So it was like 6,000 miles apart or something. So, you know, I can't just say, hey, look, why don't you just drop in and we'll have some pizza with pineapple on it and you know, record an episode, <laughs> you could pick the pineapple up. <laughs> um, it, you know, and oh, wouldn't that be great? And wouldn't it be great if we're in person? But like then I, as I kept reflecting, like the reality is 
actually there are lots of people I live in the same city as that I don't see very much. And I actually probably see you more often than I see quite a few people who I live, who I could do that with, right? Um, and who do like pineapple and pizza. So, um, so it's, it's kind of a paradoxical thing, I think, with, with the online that although I think in some way the quality of the interaction isn't quite the same, when, when you, when, like when you're physically sitting in the same room as somebody, there's just sort of nuances of body language and things that you can just pick up that, and that, that are greater than what you can get on Zoom. But paradoxically, actually, it's much easier to get together with people on Zoom. So it, it tends to happen much more. So, um, yeah, so I think overall, I, I spend a lot more time with all of my colleagues than I ever did when I had an in-person business. I, I wonder, you know, what, that's not necessarily the case though, if you are somebody who teaches online in your own business, right? So if you little, if you have a little business that you'd are the solopreneur and you've got some clients and whatever, or maybe you teach at home, you know, in your garage or your basement, or maybe you teach at a studio, maybe you rent space at a studio, whatever it might be. It's like, I think all of those people are going to be prone to social isolation, you know, from other Pilates instructors at least. And I think Pilates is kind of an anti-social job because you, by definition, you're often working when other people are not working. Like people want to come to Pilates outside of work hours, typically. So they're working before work, after work, weekends, etc. So it's, you can't sort of necessarily always say yes to that coffee date with a friend or whatever, unless they're also a Pilates instructor and you can go for a coffee date at like 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. Where uh, yeah, a lot of <laughs> a lot of your of no, your it's true. Normie friends aren't. aren't are working. It's true. Yeah, um, Naomi, one of our trainers, she she calls what we do is um, we work in antisocial times, <laughs> right? Because we are working when everybody else is not working. That's when that's when we make our bread and butter. Is uh, we we work when everybody else doesn't work. And I have I've been saying this for a long time. So I'm in a place in my in my career now where I'm a little bit choosier about how I work and what I want to do. And one of the things that I've been grappling with in my own life is I haven't had a weekend since 2015 when I started my training program. So if, if I wanted a weekend, I have to take time off. I have to find somebody else to teach for me. It's not one of those things where I can just grab my laptop and you work weekends you know, for us. do work. No, I don't work weekends for you. <laughs> no, I don't work weekends for you. I mean, technically I do because I work on Friday, which is your Saturday. <laughs> um, it's always but, a weekend somewhere. I know. Um, so no, no, I don't work weekends for you. I work weekends at the studio, the local studio that I work for, and I work weekends at the hospital that I work for. And so one of the things that I'm doing right now is to shift that time a bit so that I can try to have try to recapture my weekends and have some of that time so that I can be with my non-Pilates friends who I do have to see at 2 p.m. on a Thursday because every other time I'm working. So, yeah. But, you know, the, the I was going to say the other part about it is that I do have two very close Pilates friends here in Seattle, Robin and Lindy, shout out. Um, but I the, the trade-off, right, to the trade-off of having online or remote friendships and relationships is that there are no boundaries. So I have mentors and colleagues in Melbourne and in New Zealand and, you know, in Long Beach, like there's no limit to, to that. And that was actually my positive focus a couple of days ago is just reflecting on my current situation and thinking, I know Pilates teachers actually from all over the world it's not even an exaggeration yeah. and that's really really cool it is cool and i think for people who are not in the middle of the normal curve in terms of anything interests beliefs personality traits communication styles whatever it might be it's much it can be very difficult in a small local environment 
to to find other like-minded people. Like if you're into some obscure niche, you know, Pokemon card collecting thing or whatever, it's like, and you live in some small village in the southwest of uh, England, it's like, what are the chances someone in that same village is going to have the same hobby? But, you know, and I, I think we could transfer that to Pilates. Like if you're, if you teach a certain style of Pilates or if you're interested in a particular client type or you're going through a particular phase of your career or your personal development or whatever it might be, if you have a business at a certain size, it can be difficult to connect with other like-minded people if you're limited by your geography. But once the, the internet comes into play, we have this kind of long tail phenomenon where basically you can find some, whatever obscure thing you're into, you can find someone else who's like just as into it somewhere, you know? <laughs> so you can really connect with like-minded people and find your tribe. I think that it, the internet has really democratized that or made it much more accessible for a lot of people. Yeah, 100%. I'm really glad you brought that up actually, because the other part that I wanted to talk about was imposter syndrome. We've already done an episode on imposter syndrome and there's plenty of chit chats out, out there about imposter syndrome. But one thing that I came across after we talked about imposter syndrome ages ago, there, there, I don't remember who it was, but the guest on that podcast was talking about imposter syndrome as a sense of not belonging. That imposter syndrome is about not feeling like you belong. And to me, that is that that goes directly to the whole conversation about loneliness. You know, that loneliness and imposter syndrome can go hand in hand because mm -hmm. you don't feel like you have a tribe, that you don't belong somewhere. And again, this is where the internet, social media, Instagram, you know, whatever it is that you use as a tool to connect with people comes in handy because yeah, you don't, you know, you want to be able to find your tribe and be able to share a common mission. Yeah. I also think though that the internet can be a negative influence on imposter syndrome because in the same way that we can now find the three other people on the planet who are into the same obscure hobby that we're into, we can also now, instead of when you live in this some local little town, you know, it's not that hard to be like the best looking person in town or the fittest person in town or the person, you know, in most flexible in town or whatever. But when you're connected to the whole internet and, you know, the algorithm favors people who are better looking, more toned, have straighter legs, you know, and whatever it might be, then it comes to seem that like everyone out there is just like perfect at Pilates and, you know, ev everybody's just got amazing technique and amazing posture and amazing smile and 200,000 followers and like, and then, so I think that can, that can feed imposter syndrome quite a bit. It sure can. And I think, I think the moral of the story is, and we can certainly talk about strategies, is you have to be smarter than the algorithm. Well, um, right? how, do, how do you be smarter than 100,000 engineers at Facebook? <laughs> do, do, well, do, do, do share. I mean, I think about what you've said on, on air multiple times is like, you, you know, you're really picky. You curate the people who you follow. So that's one easy strategy is you just have to be really picky about the people you follow um, and, and to me, that's the biggest, that is honestly the biggest strategy when using Instagram, because you're totally right. I think social media is such a double-edged sword and it, um, it does as much connecting as it does disconnecting. So, you know, like, first of all, I think part of it is limiting your time on social media. That's a whole nother topic. Um, but it was something that came up within the podcast episode, with Adam Grant and Dr. Murthy, which is this is in relation to kids and having limitations on social media. But I think it's it's it can be true for all human beings is limiting your time on social media. But more than anything, remembering that social media is is such a controlled environment. People only put what they want to put down. Here's a funny story. I'm going to share my dirty laundry. So back when social media first started a long, long time ago, um, 
I don't know if I want to share the story. Okay, I'm going to share the story. A very long time ago when social media just started and, you know, we were getting excited about it. I'm going to say this is like, what, 15 years ago. Um, I, I, you know, I started my social media account and I was, you know, posting pictures and doing my thing and being sweet and sassy and all of that. And um, one of my ex-boyfriends found me on social media and was like, hi, I'm so glad we're reconnecting. You're the one who got away. And I remember saying to him, hang on a second. You're not actually in love with me. You're in love with my Facebook page. (laughs) Ask my husband. I am not a walk in the park. I am not my Facebook page. (laughs) Right. But it's just like people put what they want to put down. So that's the other thing that you have to remember is just like a lot of the people on Instagram, the Pilates people, on Instagram who are doing beautiful, amazing things. They are beautiful, talented, amazing people, but they also are just everyday people as well. And so just keeping that in mind whenever you're on social media. Yeah, well, I think it works. It operates on multiple levels, right? So you see like each of us, you know, our feed is really a best of, you know, it's like how many photos did you take to get that one that you uploaded, get the light just right or, or whatever it was. And so each of us curates our own feed, but then the algorithm curates which feed. So if all of us are up there busily uploading their, you know, the best ang- photo for the best angle or our best version of teaser or whatever it might be. And then the algorithm goes, okay, there's 1 million people uploaded photos of teaser. Well, this one's getting the most likes. So I'm going to show that one to more people. And that just happens to be the one that is most aesthetically pleasing with the best light and all of the rest of it. So it happens on multiple, on multiple levels. And so we're seeing some kind of exponentially accelerated, you know, best possible case scenario of, you know, of reality. Yeah. Yeah. And and like I said, I feel like, you know, we could do a whole conversation on media literacy. It's something that we're we're all dealing with in real time. You know, as you have a teenager, I have a teenager, and these are things that I worry I've, about I've with just our teens. Given up at this point, and it's just like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my daughter's sixteen, and um, yeah, I mean, we 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 wrestled with keeping her off social media, but basically, from the day she was like twelve years and nine months old, like you can join Instagram at thirteen. So when she was, I mean, she started nagging us when she was eleven. Oh, can't you just fake my age and let me onto Instagram? Uh, we resisted for a couple of years, but basically when she was 13, since then it was just like, we can't, you know, like once we, once we got her a phone, it was like, you know, we experiment with all of those apps, like not to let her on at certain hours and whatever. It was just, all of them were more hassle than they were worth. And basically it just came down to like, she just made our life hell, uh, until we said, <laughs> until we just gave up basically. I know I have teens too. I get it. I get it. It's really hard, but. <laughs> Can I just say that being on Instagram, you know, for me, the ways that I deal with Instagram is I, like you, I'm really picky about who I follow. And if there are things that I I don't like, um, some, you know, blatant things that I don't like, I don't follow people. Um, I like to, the out for me, the algorithm is useful when I see a post and I see who else is following. So if I see a post and I notice that you're following it, I'm thinking, okay, I trust Raph. I'm going to, I think this person has some good content. I'm going to follow them too. But then the other part that I really love, and this is where I feel like Instagram has been so wonderful is, you know, for instance, like some of the podcast episodes that we've done, people who have listened will message me on Instagram and we have conversations and we make connections with each other and we share advice and we share stories. And that's been great. Um, Kyle Marsh, shout out Kyle. She's been on the podcast many, many times. She's a wonderful movement teacher. Um, We were using Instagram for a long time to message each other anytime either of us was on a podcast on your podcast like she I would listen to her episode and then I'd do a review like I really like this and I really like that and then she'd do the same thing for me and finally I was like this is ridiculous can I just we were both in America can we please just text each other <laughs> so <laughs> so we're gonna get away from Instagram and we're gonna text each other and be text buddies but um I have found Instagram for me the the costs 
definitely are less than the benefits. Like I, yeah. the benefits are, have been really good for me. Yeah, I agree. So what, let's get onto strategies now. If, if, if I'm that person that I described before, I work by myself at home or online or employed in a studio or, or whatever it might be, but it's basically, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling lonely and isolated. What, what strategies do you recommend? What can I do? Well, I mean, when I think about connections and I think about who your social infrastructure should be, it should be made up of at least one mentor in my mind. Having somebody that you look up to that can that is that person who you trust, who you can go to with problems. So having at least one mentor is really important. And and then just having friends and colleagues that you can that you can count on. So for instance, um, one of the things that I like to tell our students at week 20 is for the last 21 weeks at week 20, but we have zero week at, at the end of the course, you are off to go and do your own thing. However, for the entirety of the course, you have been meeting regularly with your practice teaching buddies. Keep that up in some way, shape or form. Keep it up. Still, you know, you're get a zoom link and meet regularly and just have a coffee together and chit chat. Uh, I think that's a really important thing. When you go to an actual training and you connect with somebody, get their information and make contact with them and, you know, reach out. I think those are just really simple ways to do it. If you have, if you're in a job setting and you are lucky enough to have a mentor or a supervisor, you know, like I, I, I work in three places. I have, I don't, I'm a private contractor for the hospital, so I don't have a mentor, but I work at a studio and I have a peer coach if I needed her. And then at Breathe, I meet weekly with Heath. And I'll tell you what, like I, I really look forward to my sit down with Heath every week. He's just an amazing mentor to me. And that is just worth everything. That's it's worth it, you know. Like it's worth having that. So I'm really lucky. So if at all possible, try to find a mentor. I think those a, a, a benefit of that mentoring relationship that you didn't mention is the structure. And I find myself like there are lots of people I'd love to have a coffee with, but I off but basically hardly ever do. Whereas you know, we sit down together fairly regularly because we've got, we've got, we're working on projects, you know, like we made an appointment to have this conversation. And, you know, if I just said, oh, you know, we should have a coffee one time, like, yeah, yeah. And then it probably would happen eventually, but it's much easier to put it off when there's not a kind of a, a pre-existing commitment to the relationship, you know, that comes from a, a that some kind of professional engagement like a mentorship or one-on-one every week or whatever it might be and so i think you know absolutely agree with what you said it's really important to choose a mentor who's you know going to be able to mentor you effectively it's not just a social hour but i think just that structure actually is a big part of what facilitates the connection right and so i think for those with the colleagues and so on like if you can create some kind of sort of external reason why you need to meet every week, month, you know, whatever it might be with that person or that group of people, I think that, I mean, you know, it's very easy for us to put off things that we need to do for ourselves and our self-care. But for for most of us, I think most of us in this industry, it's much easier to say yes to helping others. And so if we have some kind of external reason not just our own pleasure for for taking that meeting like some kind of obligation basically uh it's much more likely to happen i think like if you were to start mentoring people or if you were to do a group with your three best sort of teaching buddies that you know once a month you get together and each each of you presents on a topic you know once every four months and you know you just say hey here's what i've learned in the last last couple of months that i'd like to share with you guys or, or whatever what do you think no, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's um, when it's low stakes, uh, it's it's easy to just skip it and not do it. It's much better to have a structure in place and um, and might even you know have a, a not a 
hard and fast goal, but to have a little bit of an agenda. Here's what I want to check in with. Let's talk about what's working and what's not working. I, I think that's a really good idea. And that, I mean, I think that I know for myself, I imagine most people are similar, is I observe this in my daughter too, although maybe that's just genetic, that when you have a meeting with somebody, like I had this meeting with you and we have a list of topics that we were going to potentially talk about. And there's a couple of topics that we didn't end up talking about today, which we'll talk about in the future. But I was like, oh, if Natalie asked me about that, I don't really know what my answer would be. So I better go and do some research. So I, that that motivated me to go and read and do some Google searches and you know, see what was out there. And so that actually spurred me on to a bit of self-improvement. And I think that's really going to probably be the case for most people. I imagine like if you know that, okay, you promised to share with something with your friends that you meet every month about queuing or programming or whatever it might be. It's like, well, you're going to put that off to the last minute almost certainly, but then the night before you'll be like, oh crap, I better <laughs> go and read up on that thing because I'm going to look like a fool tomorrow otherwise. Yeah. You know what I was thinking about as you were talking about having a regular meeting and having a bit of a structure is uh, in the podcast that I was listening to about workplace loneliness, they were talking about why happy hour meetups don't work. You know, like if you were a brick and mortar and it's like, oh, Friday after work, we're all going to get together and have happy hour. Um and what they found is that's not an effective way to combat workplace loneliness because oftentimes when you have these unstructured um, company events, all the clicks just end up being clicky and they just, they don't branch mm -hmm. out. So mm -hmm. a better strategy, if you were a studio owner or, you know, the leader of the company is get everybody together, but have a structure in place where you are actually almost forcing people to, you know, so for instance, like at Breathe, at Breathe, we have different departments. And one thing that I thought was really, really clever is when we had our Christmas party over Zoom, I was placed in rooms with people who I probably wouldn't have gravitated to, not because I don't like them, it's just because I don't know them. You know, if, if I were given my choice, if you had given me a choice of you can go into this Zoom room for the trainers or this Zoom room for the marketing people or this Zoom room for student support, you know where I'd go. I'd just go find my friends. But, you know, we were assigned to groups where it was just like getting to meet people from different departments. And that was really important for an introvert like me where I hate change and I don't like small talk. It's like I would never have gone into Zoom room number two, unless I was forced to do it. And I thought I was laughing when I was listening to that part because I'm like, of course, they're talking about people like me. Mm, mm. <laughs> like, I need I need help. And that, I think that's the equivalent of assigned seating at a dinner party, right? Like when I was a kid, I always thought that was silly, having name tags, like name place, you know, markers. But now I see the point of it. It's like, oh, yeah, well, if, if I know Natalie and – Naomi are just going to sit together and gossip on about the history of Pilates for two hours. It's like, well, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's like, why don't I sit Natalie next to Lizzie? And, you know, that way you guys can share some new information with each other and get to know each other a bit better. Yeah. And I wasn't responsible for that Christmas party. Uh, that I think that was Viren and, and Julie, if I remember right. Maybe it was Anissa. I think Anissa. it was Anissa. Okay. Shout yeah. out Anissa. Yeah, nice job. Shout out Anissa. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was really good. So maintain, you know, so maintain your friendships from and your connections from your training course. And when you do go on sort of weekend workshops or ongoing education, like if there's someone that you click with, like grab their details and say, hey, let's 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 stay in touch, uh, and then try and make it a regular thing. Say, hey, let's make one meet once a month, once a week, whatever it might be, and go find yourself a mentor. How do you find? How do you uh, how do you find a mentor? Just say you're. I don't know, you teach, you've certified 15 years ago and you teach from home and it's like, okay, I've, you've totally lost connection with people you're certified with, whatever. So how do you, how would, how would you go about finding a mentor? Oh, I think that takes a lot of effort. And to be completely honest with you, I've been so lucky because I have mentors falling into my lap, right? Like when I, I, I work for Breathe and I, I have a mentor, but you know, I'm thinking about like, so the benefit perhaps of maybe joining a, a professional organization 
that might be a benefit is that it that creates a structure in which you can network with people who are also part of that organization. So, you know, I'm thinking of some of the Pilates organizations that are established. Um, they're also uh, one of their jobs, at least in America, in, in the United States, one of the jobs of the, for instance, the Pilates Method Alliance, which I actually am not a member of, but they put on really big nationwide conferences and I think those are actually really good opportunities if you can get to one. If you can get to one, those are those could potentially be great opportunities to network with people and find people. My problem is that I don't like going to huge conferences. <laughs> that sounds like a, the seventh circle of hell for me. I'd prefer not to do that. So I've always been able to, you know, find connections with smaller, more local trainings. I've been able to meet. Pilates instructors, typically, typically the people who are hosting, not hosting, but leading the trainings. That's how I've located mentors in the past. Or if you, if you really connected with one of your um, teacher trainers, that might be a nice thing. And I know for me, for instance, you know, we've graduated a bunch of cohorts in the time that I've worked for Breathe. And those people are still coming back to me for coaching calls simply to just check in and let me know how things are going. Um, so that's happening in Zoom calls. That also happens on Instagram a lot. I have these two students, Kim and Anna, from our January cohort, and they're constantly sending me pictures of the two of them getting together doing Pilates and like telling me about their work and telling me about their jobs. And I'm just like this proud mama. I'm just like, look at these, look at these little kids growing up. It's just really fun. And, you know, there's just so many ways that you can make connections, but it does, I think it takes effort. And I think, you know, I'm speaking to all the fellow introverts out there, like it doesn't just happen. You have to put in the energy to do it. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I, I've spoken before about Pilates professional bodies. I'm not a, not a fan. Um, but I do, I do agree with what you say about conferences and, and trainings you know, are a great place to meet people. I actually think like as an introvert myself and as somebody who gets approached and asked if I will mentor people fairly regularly, uh, you can actually just like choose anyone you like in the whole world and ask them to mentor you. Uh, so it could be someone you follow on social media, someone you did a training with one time, you know, someone who's an employer to someone you know, you know, anybody really. Uh, and speaking as somebody who does get asked a fair bit, like, would you mentor me? Um, I, I can say that there are things that will endear your application to that person. There are things that will be a massive turnoff out of, out of the gate. For, for many people who have been teaching for a while, you know, a decade or more and who are getting experience in the industry, like a lot of us want to give back. And and there are, I've been the recipient of lots of free mentoring from people who are more experienced than me over the years. And I've also mentored a lot of people over the years. And I can tell you that the the joy of mentoring somebody is like you said, Natalie, it's like being a proud parent and going, oh, oh look, I can, here's somebody who's really keen to learn and improve themselves and is just a sponge for anything I share with them. And so what I, what I love and what I've observed my mentors to, to appreciate is when you give someone some advice or some guidance, and then they go and implement it. And they ring you up and they go, you know what? I did exactly what you suggested and here's what happened, right? And it worked or it didn't work or, you know, am I doing it right? Or, you know, and, and so you know that you're you're not just spending an hour of your time once a month and just blathering on and then the person completely ignores you and goes away and doesn't implement anything. And then they come back and go, oh, I'm still having the same problem. You're like, well, did you do what I suggested? And they're like, no. Um, so, so I try and filter now for those people. So if somebody, you know, DMs me on on social media and just says, hey, do you do mentoring? I'm like, that's a very low quality application. I'm like, no, I don't. I do in fact, usually I don't even respond because I just get so many DMs. But if somebody DMs says, hey, Raph, I've been following you for ages. I like A, B, and C about what you do. I really think I could learn 
more about A, B, and C from you. I'd 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 be so grateful if you would, you know, spend just half an hour with me one time. I'd really love to, you know, know what you're doing. Prom- I promise you, I'll implement what you teach me. Like that to me is going to grab my eye, and I think, huh, all right, well, might I might actually be able to help this person because it looks like they might actually be serious about improving themselves. They're not just like, you know, spamming out a, a bunch of three word, you know, DMs. So I think if you if you're serious about um, wanting to be mentored by somebody, set your sights high. Don't think, oh, this person's too big and high and mighty to mentor me. But think about you know what's in it for them. And I think what's in it for the mentor is not money. You know, like if somebody's got three hundred thousand followers on social media, like, and you're just a newbie in the start of your career, there's probably no amount of money that you could afford that would be of any value to them right so what you you could pay them a week's wages they probably wouldn't even notice that if it fell out of their wallet so so the money's the money's not going to be the inducement but what will induce them is the sense that they can actually give back in a meaningful way that's going to have an impact and so if you can convince them that you will actually implement what they teach you like i tell you what impresses the hell out of me and how i've just taken on somebody who i'm mentoring now is I wrote a book called How to Make $100,000 a Year Teaching Pilates. And I had uh, someone, Sandy Arianti, shout out. You're awesome, Sandy. Um, she came to me and said, oh, by the way, I read your book and I implemented in it and now I'm making $100,000 a year. Right? I was like, that is awesome. <laughs> And she was like, oh, now can you help me make $200,000 a year? I'm like, heck yes. She said, can you look at my ads? Can you look at my this? Can you look? Yeah, absolutely I can. Because you've already demonstrated to me that you really take this stuff seriously and you're here to learn and improve and grow, right? So it's like, for sure, like that's that's how to win hearts and minds when it comes to looking for a mentor in my view. So have you signed Sandy for book deal number two, sequel to how to make a hundred thousand dollars, how yeah. to double it? Um, well, actually I am going to write another book called how to make $250,000 a year teaching Pilates. And that's going to be about running a studio business, because if you want to make that kind of money, I think, I mean, unless you're a maniac and you want to work 80 hours a week teaching the whole time, um, you're going to have to employ other people to do that. Uh, so that means a studio business. Yeah. yeah. How, do I'm going to go back to what you. Oh, no, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I want to go back to what you said about, you know, um, you were talking about mentoring and reaching out to people. And I think that you were talking about reaching out to people without the expectation, with the expectation of perhaps not paying them. But I do want to say that, you know, there are reputable businesses that do mentoring that you pay for. It's an investment. We know people who do that. You do that. Um, we know we work with people who do that for for part of their business. And those are people who I would trust any of you as a mentor, depending on what your, you know, what your go- end goal is. So if you can afford to pay for and invest in yourself, I think there's something to be said, in, at least in the mentoring part. Your friends should be free. Friends are free. Colleagues perhaps are, are free. But if you're mentoring and if you can afford it, I think there's also um, an avenue of paying somebody to be a mentor. And that right there is like you're you're paying them. They need to show up for you. Right. And I agree. And I'm not against paid mentoring. And in fact, I have some paid mentees and I have paid mentors, you know, uh, that I, I've paid money to. Uh, and I, But I think in my experience, and you know, maybe you see it differently, but I, I like all of those relationships, the ones that have involved financial transactions with a mentor, they've all been around uh, concrete financial objectives. Like, so I want to get my business from this amount of profit to this amount of profit, right? And so, you know, if I've got someone I'm working with at the moment, they want to get from $30,000 a month profit to $50,000 a month profit, right? Well, so if I can help them do that, well, it totally makes sense for me to charge them some fraction of that amount. It's like, all right, well, if I can charge you a thousand and make you twenty thousand, would that be a good deal? It's like, yeah, that's a good deal. And so I think that's that's fine. That's great. But I think at the beginning of your career, or if you just want sort of general help with being a better teacher or 
whatever. I think it's not out of the question to get that for free. Oh, absolutely. And I'm here for all of my <laughs> my students who have gone away. I actually, I asked them, like, will you please, will you please keep in touch with me and let me know what you're doing and how you're doing? Because I want to know. I, It doesn't feel good to just send them off. Like, that's that's just me projecting my own stuff on everybody. It's just like, I, I, I don't want to leave people feeling like they've just been left to their own devices. So yeah, mm. make connections with, with your teachers. So do we have, any, do you have any other great advice or you know, thoughts for people who are out there feeling isolated, feeling lonely? No, I just feel like if you and I can do it as professed introverts, anybody can do it. I will also say too, you know, I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about introversion just because I am one, my son is one. And I remember during the pandemic when we, when everything shut down and we were in lockdown, um, I, I have one extroverted child and one introverted child and the extrovert got his needs met. He was just like, I don't care what you say. I need to see my friends. I'm going out for a bike ride. Leave me alone. Whereas the introvert was just happily in his room and doing his own thing and, you know, cut to a year and a half later, we didn't realize until a year and a half later that this introvert actually really needed us, his parents, to push him to have more connections because that he needed it just as much as the extrovert needed it. We just needed it in different ways. And so that that's something I was thinking about. It's just like, even if you think you're an introvert and you think you want to be by yourself, like we're just not built that way. Humans need to have attachments and connections and support you know it's your it's your network that catches you when you fall down especially when you fall down so it's just I just think that it's this is a really important topic and Pilates is truly a very lonely job sometimes something that just occurred to me is and I think that you know be as you were talking about introversion there and so this is I'm a massive introvert like I mean I don't know. I almost disagree with what you just said there on my own, on my own behalf. Like I could gladly literally not leave my house for months on end. Uh, but yeah. So anyway, I don't, that's, that's not what I wanted to share that something I think that has really opened up a lot of connections for me is not, is losing my fear about being about saying the wrong thing. So I and I think that is I suspect that's the case for a lot of people. That you know, and we go back to the cancel attack that we experienced last year sometime. Before that, I was always to a certain extent circumspect in what I'd said. Like I didn't want to sort of ruffle people's feathers and I still it's not my goal to ruffle anyone's feathers like I don't want to to offend people but now I'm just less I don't I also don't uh if there's a conflict between like the truth and offending people and if I think it's valuable for people to hear the truth you know then I'll just say the truth as I understand it and and since that has happened since I'm now you know, like, for example, the whole cancel attack thing started because I used the word uh, woman after pregnant, you know, so I said pregnant women, uh, blah, 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 you know, and I was talking about Pilates or diastasis or something like that. And so then this whole, you know, men can get pregnant to pregnant people, etc., happened. Uh, and, you know, I was attacked and pilloried for that. And after blocking 12 people on social media, the attacks completely ceased. So it was a very, very small, very vocal group of people. But, you know, those 12 people, but probably 250 people DM'd me and said, thank you for saying that. I wanted to say that. I was too afraid. I don't want to be cancelled. I don't want to lose my job. But, you know, and I'm not, I'm not in a position to stand up publicly and support you, but just know that, like, you know, I feel exactly the same. And so what I what I take from that is that there are a very large number of people. Now, that's an extreme situation, but even with things like neutral spine or, you know, cueing muscle activation or, you know, just the kind of 
what I would consider like no one gives a rat's ass about it outside of Pilates, you know, the topics that we talk about on this podcast. I get so many messages, like a couple of dozen a week from people saying like, oh, thank you for bringing that up. I was wondering about that. I've always had my doubts. It never seemed right to me, but I just didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to be the idiot. Everyone else seems to know it and agree with it. And I didn't want to be the only idiot that didn't get it. And so I think that quite possibly there's this, you know, vast you know, ocean of people out there who who agree with, you know, each other, right? But who think that they're the only weirdo who thinks this way and they're all too afraid to say anything. And it's such a kind of a catch-22 because it's really only 12 people who are, who are the assholes. And it's this vast number of people who like, if, if you could, if, if we could just feel safe enough or not give a shit enough to say, you know what, I don't cube posture or whatever, right? All of a sudden we might discover it's like, oh no, a lot of other people feel the same. You're not alone. Yeah. No, and that's really, that's been such a huge benefit of having this podcast is that we're able to reach a lot of people. And in that way, people can start to identify others who are thinking like them. I mean, that's how I found breathe was I, I stumbled upon your podcast and it was like, I'm finally, I'm finally able to breathe again because all of the things that I've been wondering about, I thought I was the only one. I was really feeling very isolated and afraid of saying things because I was afraid of getting shunned and, and shamed. Right. And I think that there, there is so much of that in social media. There's so much of that in our everyday lives um, and the only way we can combat that is to continue to reinforce our connections with the people who love us no matter what, but also those people who agree with with us. And um, and also just being brave, you know, being brave and being able to to be you and yourself and to say what you want without fear of being shunned. And I think that I, I do see that in you. And one of the things that I think is really empowering for me as an employee of yours is that after all of that happened, you and Julie made a concerted effort within our our company to just reassure everybody that, you know, we we first believe that we have good intention when we say something, that we're not going to get punished for something that we say, and that we are able to just be ourselves. And that's really, really important because by and large, there's so many, I think, I think I follow these kinds of cultural shifts. But for a while, there was a lot of that going on in lots of workplaces where people were afraid to say anything wrong because they're afraid they're going to lose their job and get canceled. So, you know, I think the benefit that I got from you having to go through that um, experience was I get to work for a company where I can be myself and be candid and be, be direct. And, you know, you're constantly saying things like, just say what it is you need to say. You know, I'm and that's really nice that I don't have to think about it because it is feel it feels like walking on eggshells and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel good. It takes a lot of energy to do that. Yeah, and you know that's that's one of the things I love about working with you is that you are just genuine and what you see is what you get. And uh, you know, if you haven't said something to me about something, I assume that's because you don't have anything to say on the topic. You know. Yep. <laughs> like, we'll see, we'll see. Um, and so, but I think that you know. A lot of the time, my view is, and and, and you know, can, being cancelled is real, and losing your job is a real possibility for some people, right? So these these fears are not irrational. But I think we exaggerate them in our mind because the fear of so of being socially shunned is, you know, like that's why we fear public speaking worse than death, you know. That fear of being ostracized by the tribe and sent out into the wilderness to die is, you know, it's hardwired into our lizard brain that, you know, you must not be rejected by the tribe um, because that would have literally been death 100,000 years ago in the ancestral environment. And so that's that just puts us straight away into fight or flight and, you know, terror. Um, and I think that can cause us to exaggerate the actual threat 
And, you know, for most of us, you know, not for everybody, but for most of us, it's like, well, there's another job, you know, and there's another social group. If you just block 12 people from your social media, there's 7.9 billion people in the world. You know, <laughs> there's plenty of other people. Um, and so I think to a certain extent, I think that's self-censoring. And I'm not even talking about cancel culture here in particular, but just about like Pilates-based topics just like the way you like to teach or, you know, what you believe to be true in the world of movement. It's like you, my experience and my, my belief now is that like by just easing up on our self-censorship a bit, what you'll almost certainly find is that firstly, a lot of people will be like, oh, thank God someone finally said it. <laughs> And and a lot of other people who might not agree with what you said will just be like, oh, that's interesting. That's not the way I see it. Tell me more about the way you see it that way. Like, there won't be any animosity from a lot of people. They'll just be like, huh, that's curious. Never thought about it that way before. Uh, and then there'll be some tiny, tiny fraction of people that will get super upset because you pointed your toes the wrong way in ballet stretches. And, you know, it's like, well, great, just block that person and move on, right? Um and so we each have to judge these situations for ourselves and only each of us knows only, you know, the context in which we exist and our work situation and whatever. And so I'm not here to tell anyone what you should or shouldn't do. But my experience was that the fear was like about a thousand times worse than the reality. And that that actually just the the ability to just be unfiltered now and just say what I actually think just without ever worrying about, oh, what will so-and-so think about this or whatever is like, it's so, so freeing. <laughs> it's so good. And, and to know that if I've got a friend now that we're discussing stuff with, it's like, and we seem to be in agreement. It's like, that's because we are in agreement, right? It's not because we're both pretending to believe something that we don't actually believe. Yeah, well, and this on on the other side of the coin is if you don't agree with something, it's not personal, right? Like right. that's and that again goes back to I think the culture that you cultivate in our breathe community is it is totally okay to disagree with somebody and there's a way to do it without feeling like you are disparaging that person. Like you right. just, you know, having viewpoint diversity is really important and it's encouraged. And this is the one job that I really feel like I can say to people who I actually really love, admire, and look up to is, I disagree with you about that. And yeah. it's no big deal. It's like, it's actually welcome. And it's, it's not something that we get everywhere. And that's the other thing too, is just like, I feel like it is so nice to be around people, to have a tribe of people that you want that you agree with all the time but it's even richer to be with people in your group who you don't always agree with or you have you know you, in the in pilates world having somebody who is a contemporary pilates practitioner but you're classical or whatever just having having camaraderie and finding other commonalities is is more important than all of the little details because at the end of the day they're just details how do you, I'm interested in how you see this from a sociological or psychologist perspective that, you know, when, if we disagree on something, that there are two ways that, that I could sort of respond emotionally to that. And one could be like curiosity of like, huh, you know, that's interesting. You know, I never thought about it that way. Why do you, why do you see it that way? You know? And the other one is like, oh, you must be evil if you, you know, you don't hold the same belief as me, therefore you're a bad person. Um, and it's so therefore, I, why would I engage in conversation with you? Because it's like, why would I talk with Satan? You know, like, so, <laughs> so, so like, what do you see as, you know, how do you interpret the psychology or the sociology behind that, those two different mindsets? I don't know. I mean, they're, th those are really common, right? You see a lot of people who are like that, people who are really, who have a really tight identity and and don't have any tolerance for other beliefs and then I, you see a lot of that still I see a lot of that still I would be guilty of certain things like that too I think I feel like depending on what's happening in the moment and you know culturally and um politically I think it's really easy to pick a side I think and and I also think there are consequences 
social consequences for not picking sides. And I say this coming from a small town with, you know, like family who are all over each other. It's just like, you're either with me or against me. So, I mean, I just think it's what you just described as the human condition. That's just what it is. There are people who are more tolerant and willing to listen and are curious. And then there are a lot of people who um, are more tribal. And I think the more tribal is actually more in line with our evolution. You know, like if you think about why people identify so strongly with the people who are like them, that's what we needed to survive way back when. And our evolution hasn't caught up with our times Mm -hmm. where it's like things are just so much more, more liberal. There's so many interesting stories and people uh, who can speak so much more eloquently about this. There's one I'm thinking of. I can't think of his name right now, but he he talks a lot about tribalism and why we are the way that we are. You're not thinking of Jonathan Haidt, are you? No, I'm not. I'm thinking of somebody else. Um, I can hear his voice in my head, but I can't remember. I, I've got a book. I've got His book is on my nightstand. In any case, yeah, I think it's just the human condition to just stick with it's a survival mechanism to just gravitate to the people who are most like you right all right so what you're saying is i should uh, acknowledge that that's just human nature and be pleasantly surprised when somebody's not like that yeah it's just human nature i think but you know it's like i think the difference between being a human and being an animal is like we try to transcend our base instincts <laughs> It's so much more it's so much more attractive and fun and adventurous to be curious. Right. And you can then to push somebody away. And it doesn't have to be a dichotomy either, because you can pick a side, like you can vote a certain way or believe a certain thing about queuing or whatever, and know that, you know, there are people who disagree with you who are wrong, but still go out for a coffee with them. Right. It's true. I'm just going to pick off the pineapple from the pizza. That's it. <laughs> exactly. And just know that if you come to Seattle I and I get pizza, pineapple. there. yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, well, well, I think that might be one key difference. Um, and I'm interested in your psychological perspective on this because people who like pineapple on pizza, I mean, I can happily eat pizza without pineapple, right? But the, the, that doesn't. The inverse isn't true. Yeah. It's because it's junky. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. So my, my one, my younger child loves pineapple with pizza and for their birthdays, they get to choose what we're going to have for dinner. And I feel like just to stab me in the back, he's always like, we're going to have Hawaiian pizza for my birthday. Just because he knows it just makes me squirm. And I can't say no. Like, well, do they actually have that in Hawaii? Pineapple and pizza? I mean, you can order that. It is, it mystifies me that if you put pineapple on something, it's automatically Hawaiian. Because, you know, I grew up in Hawaii and I like pizza with all the toppings. We We didn't just have pineapple and ham pizza or pineapple pizza. I don't know who made that up, um, but yeah, it's it's gross. <laughs> I don't like it. I do like pineapple though, and I will say that Hawaii has some really amazing pineapple. So if you ever go to Hawaii, see if you can get the acid-free pineapple that's usually white, not yellow. It's fabulous, fabulous pineapple. I've never been to Hawaii, but I definitely want to go. It's sort of halfway between melbourne and la so we always fly over it every time we we head to the states and i always think gee we could just should have, could have just gone to hawaii <laughs> that would be amazing it's true yeah it's I'd, true I'd, we I'd could have our there. next breathe our next breathe staff meeting in hawaii well it's kind of the midpoint yeah it kind of is there you um, go i was thinking about the philippines though because i went to the philippines earlier this year to meet with our our team in the philippines about six or seven of them there and it's so beautiful in the Philippines. That's what I've heard. Yeah. 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 Well, good talk, Natalie. Thanks very much. Thanks, Raf. Good talk. I I feel a little less lonely after that. Yeah, me too. And dear listener, I hope you do as well. Much love. See ya. 
after two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.